0: This episode is sponsored by Villanova University's Sustainable Engineering Graduate Program. Gain tangible takeaways and sustainable business best practices that you can immediately apply to your organization. Offered online and on campus. Visit VUSustainableEngineering.com.
1: GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCauer, still social distancing here at home in Oakland, California. On this week's edition, the state of the sustainability profession, the current climate for climate aligned investing, how banks could support the transition to a low carbon economy, and reimagining capitalism in a world on fire. We are keeping our cool this week on 350. It's May 1st, 2020. Happy May Day or International Workers Day for those who celebrate that sort of thing. And welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. Joining me from her sprouting garden at home in Midland Park, New Jersey, it's Editorial Director Heather Clancy. Hey, Heather.
0: Hey, Joel. You've been looking at my Instagram. <laughs> yes,
1: I have. <laughs> Tell me what you got uh, sprouting this week.
0: Uh, what is sprouting this week? Well, the tulips have all been eaten by the deer. Yeah. But uh, what is sprouting this week? The lilacs are starting to bloom and I, my garden is is mainly flowers. I am not one of these wonderful industrious people that does a good vegetable garden partly because of aforementioned deer <laughs> they eat it all so anyway um but it's 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 looking lovely
1: it's good. looking lovely well, we are sprouting a bunch of webcasts over the next few weeks, uh, through the month of May at least and beyond uh, as part of our uh, increased presence on uh, digital media during this time of home detention and social distancing and everything else. Uh, had two great ones this week. One, we're going to play a few excerpts from the State of the Profession webcast we had. And, uh, and then we also had on Thursday uh, our four Verge analysts. Uh, talking about uh, the coronavirus and how that's affecting the markets for energy and transport, food, and the circular economy. i uh, have got more coming up, but uh, what are you excited about, Heather? You've got a couple big ones, I think.
0: I do. I have a whopper <laughs> next week. It's with the Qantas, Microsoft, and Gold Standard, and it's on how to be absolute zero and what that means um, as, as far as a climate strategy for business resilience. And we have... I'm afraid to mention the number because I don't know what it'll be when we actually go live, but I know it's more than 3,000 registrants, and uh, that's a whopper of a webcast. I
1: think that's the most that we've ever gotten, although we have uh, a number, like including the, the ones we did this week with over 2,000, but uh, yeah, just people... Uh, love hearing from us on, on these things. And uh, you have to say we produce some pretty good webcasts. Uh, I, I keep watching them. I, I, I just watched one this week on the publishing industry and you know, people forget to turn on their mics and they're, can you hear me? And is, is anybody, are you seeing my slide? And you know, it's just, <laughs> it's still kind of amateur hour in a lot of these uh, companies. And I, I like to boast that our team is so nailed down, buttoned down when we do these things. Um, Then you have uh, uh, another one on climate tech, right? This
0: is climate tech. Uh, It's sort of the virtual event version of the story that I did for Earth Day on climate technologies, everything from agricultural uh, technologies, precision agriculture and so forth, to carbon removal and clean transportation methods. Uh, there, There is no shortage of activity happening. There was at least five funding announcements in the past week that I'm aware of, including a $100 million C round, Series C round for a company called Pivot Bio. They're working on alternatives to synthetic fertilizers. So lots of action. And I've got two terrific venture capitalists who will be joining me and and more to come. But the, the, the folks I've got confirmed are Nancy Fund from DBL Partners. She was an early investor in Tesla. And Andrew Beebe from Obvious Ventures. So Two great friends of ours who who have been in this for a long time, and I'm looking forward to this conversation. It's very exciting.
1: Yeah, that should be great. And I'm excited about my conversation one-on-one with John Elkington, who is uh, my friend and mentor and just one of the great, great voices in this this field for a long, long time, Um, and uh, started the consulting firm in 1987 called Sustainability, coined the term triple bottom line in the 90s, And this is the occasion of his 20th book called Green Swans, and we're just going to go at it and talk about where things are going. He's always insightful. The other insightful person is another uh, one we're doing uh, with Suzanne Shelton and the Shelton Group on fringe consumers. These are the consumers that the you know sort of at the fringe of thinking, but whose ideas uh, eventually become mainstream. And we've seen some of that uh, recently, just you know, the the rise of, uh, of of Zoom and and a lot of those things that you know people were talking about, but took took something, the catalyst to make things happen. She's going to look ahead and reveal some new consumer research on what consumers are thinking and where this might be leading into some new fringe ideas going mainstream. And then finally, there's the. Uh, Circularity 20 Digital, a half day event that we're doing uh, on the days that were going to be the original Circularity Conference in May, May 19th in particular. Uh, But uh, that conference has now moved to August. But we're doing this half day event. It's all free, as is all of our webcasts. Uh, There's going to be several great panels. I know you're moderating uh, at least one, as am I, and some breakout discussion groups, uh, panels, and uh, tune on to all that. We'll put the links to all of these in the page for. uh, this week's webcast, or you can always go to greenbiz.com slash events slash webcasts. And with that, let's turn the page and go over to our Week in Review.
0: I'll get us started this week, Joel, with a piece from our longtime partners at Rocky Mountain Institute called Downturn Signals Opportunity for Climate Aligned Investing. There have been some great pieces that we've run over the past couple of weeks on how the ESG funds and and stocks that have been very well aligned with with climate risk uh, uh, scenarios and so forth have been doing. Uh, generally speaking, there's been some positive feedback on, on how those those funds are performing amid this sort of turmoil and, and disruption that we're seeing uh, in the stock markets and so forth. And this piece is about how we can kind of take that a step further. So I, I think one of the things that really struck me is, is certainly they, they talk about the the, the basic funds and, and so, sort of the need to to be att- paying attention to, to those, but, uh, you know, mention that the sort of predicament that we have, which is that there's not a lot of good standards. We don't quite know how to benchmark these against each other. There's a lot of sort of uh, fragmented data, if you will, about where to focus. Two of the things that, that, that stuck out for me, though, was the, the need to strengthen the sort of E part of the funds, right? So we see a lot of focus on uh, governance, right? When people talk about ESG, a lot of times the, the disclosures and so forth are focused on governance. Um, so we will see, I think, more of a um, focus on the E, environmental stuff, but also on things like um, diversity and executive pay, uh, how how also I think especially coming out of this pandemic how people treat their people, right? So how companies treat their people, how they treat laborers, not only they're on their own workforces but in their supply chains. So that will be a higher a higher area of focus. And then as we move into the recovery, how how do do, do the stocks um, align with with decarbonization, right? So. As, as we come out of this, there will be more attention on just what those plans are. So I think th- this 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 offers a nice uh, look at, at what's possible and, and some of the movements that are already happening. What what are your thoughts on this one?
1: Yeah, it's great to see that uh, climate investing and climate risk is aligning with the ESG and Wall Street investors, and, and it's all become one big thing. It's not sitting off to the side like it used to, um, but yeah... The, We've been seeing that ESG well-rated funds have been doing better than the market average, uh, particularly in these, these tough times. And as a result, some of the ETFs, the exchange-rated funds that focus on ESG uh, uh, keep attracting assets. They've been growing and growing. Uh, they, they've reached $14 billion. No, no end in sight on that, even in this down market. Um, And and you see a lot of action. You you talked about the rise of ASG and you mentioned some things that actually were part of the S, which I was surprised to see that the E needed more uh, attention. The S is where a lot of the attention is around fair wages, Mm -hmm. labor standards, board diversity. All of these things, in addition to environmental policies, uh, are, are resulting in greater company resilience and then we have the R word showing up, the resilience being a, a huge factor right now as companies are trying to stay afloat, trying to keep people employed, trying to keep their customers engaged and wanting to be there when, when this recovery finally starts to, to, to ramp. Um, and that's, not, you know, we're seeing uh, every everyone from from Ford to some of the airlines and, and Macy's that are just at either you know, now selling junk bonds or thinking, looking at bankruptcy. So this is not a done deal at all. We have a lot of companies. Uh, I think that a lot of the economic carnage, frankly, scares the heck out of me as much as the uh, as the health stuff. So I think that's that's getting under control. We're sort of figuring that out, but. There's so many risk factors in in the financial side, uh, uh, not just in company bankruptcies and you know trying to you know, regain customers and 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 keep the bills paid and the lights on, but this credit bubble I mean, we're seeing the stories now about now that people are deferring uh, their rent and credit card and car payments um, uh, and and mortgages uh, for a month or two or. Question mark? We don't know how long. There's a credit bubble that's that's I think getting ready to burst, and that feels like a whole new wave of economic woes. So there is no bottom yet, as far as I can see, to this. And ESG um, becomes a little bit of an island in a stormy sea, um, and in terms of you know understanding where uh, what resilience looks like and what the factors are, and of course, it's ESG is hardly the only factors. But there's uh, a school of thought that says that ESG is a proxy for well-run companies. In other words, companies that do well in environmental, social, and governance metrics are generally well-run and are generally going to be around to to live another day. So that's, uh, I think, an exciting development, and we'll see more coming from that. But let's turn to the trees and the forests (laughs) and the Amazon or um, excuse me, not the Amazon. Well, the Amazon. The I guess. Amazon,
0: yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> Which is the, the
1: the company up in Seattle, not the forest in South America. Um, but they have committed in sort of a weird convergence, I guess, uh, at least conceptually. <laughs> uh, Amazon's committing to to do more work in forest and protect trees. And uh, you wrote that story, Heather. So what's going on?
0: But it's not in the Amazon. <laughs> uh, it's actually yes. This is part of their hundred million dollar. Right Now Climate Fund, which they established last year, um, and it is focused on nature-based solutions. So last year, they said that they would devote that much money to nature and and specifically to help them figure out how to take down some of their carbon, right? But um, this is not a tree planting commitment. This is a tree preserving, protecting commitment. And it's a $10 million grant, so part of that money, that will go to funding programs in near me, actually, in the Appalachian Mountains, uh, Pennsylvania, Vermont. And the idea is to help a couple of organizations that are, that are working with uh, family-run forests. So, so, like, land that's owned by family, families. And I, didn't, I did not know this statistic. It's pretty astounding. Families or individuals own close to 40% of all U.S. forests. So it's like 90 million acres. Many of them are struggling to keep maintenance going on those forests because of taxes and and so forth um, and being squeezed by larger landowners. And so Amazon decided to help put its money toward carbon programs, uh, specifically a, a, a marketplace that's being built to help family tree farmers um, and so this is a a really intriguing program um, that they've that they've come out to, to fund. There's actually two programs. One is run by the American Forest Foundation, and that's the one down near me in Pennsylvania. And there's a second one called the Forest Carbon Co-op and it's uh, up in Vermont and it's it's helping slightly larger uh, farms in, in, in trees and up in in that state. So, it's a it's an interesting uh it's an interesting program and I really love the fact that it's focused on if you will the small guys that that, that have, could have a big impact.
1: Yeah, that's a really interesting statistic I had no idea about 40% uh being owned by sort of mom and pops but I also didn't don't think about forests needing maintenance uh that doesn't that just struck well, me as as interesting. Uh, what can yeah. you tell us about that?
0: Well, so here's the thing. I mean, if you if you think about it, um as trees grow, and I have this, I have this kind of <laughs> conglomeration in my own small backyard. Actually, uh, as the as trees grow and as as the the saplings begin to grow, the if the low value trees, if you will, the ones that are crowding out the the, the older ones, need to be cleared, and they need to be they need to be uh, thinned, if you will. So there's a lot of things that you can do on on properties, as such as thinning trees, uh, also keeping out Inves, invasive uh, vegetation and so forth, that that promote the habitat and that also, uh, you know, the, the idea here is to help fund those efforts so that the the, the people that own these forests can keep the, the higher growth, the higher value trees, like the big old growth trees, from being cut down. So they don't want, they they don't want to have to to cut them down. But right now, a lot of these farmers are cutting them down because they need the money. Um, and, and and frankly, a lot of them have really good forest forestry stewardship practices already, right? the, the One of the women that I, the one of the people that I wrote about is Susan Benedict. and she's been working, she's been certified to to certain standards for for quite a long time, the American Tree Farm system since 2002. But as she's been getting squeezed by by larger uh, mills and, and and the the sort of larger, forests out there, she's been having a harder time uh, not cutting down the big trees. So this fund uh, and what, what uh, the American Forest Foundation is doing is trying to put together uh, a carbon marketplace so that these farmers get credit for, for, these, um, for these commitments. So, they, so they're going to be able to sell these credits. Eventually, Amazon will benefit from those, from those removal credits. And so that's, that's, the, that's the notion. That's the notion behind this.
1: Interesting stuff. Well, let's move over from trees to uh, sprouting green growth of the sustainability profession. This week, we published our biennial state of the profession report put together by our colleague, John Davies, vice president and senior analyst at Green Group. And it looks, uh, based on some research that he does globally with uh, sustainability executives at uh, companies large and small, uh, looks at... um, uh, salaries and reporting relationships and headcount and resources and trends, in terms of any number of things, uh, sort of looking at well, the state of the profession. Is it interesting? We had a webcast uh, on that this week. We'll play some clips for, from that in a minute. Uh, he fielded the research in the last couple of months of 2019. So, this is before we knew that we were going to be where we are. Uh, uh, social distancing and all of that, and let, let alone the uh, recession and everything else. And so, we talked a little bit about in the webcast what that looks like since. But but the trends were pretty good, actually, in terms of uh, uh, fairly, you know, optimist optimistic about how far the profession had come and the number of companies that had a dedicated uh, sustainability department um, and. How many of those companies are planning to add to the sustainability team's headcount? Um, so I think there's a, and just the, the purview. There's a lot more uh, effort. Sort of to my earlier point about the S in ESG of sustainability, folks not just looking just looking at environmental, but also at the social dimensions. In the past, some of those had been uh, in other departments, but now a lot of that's consolidating. Uh, in the sustainability department. So there's some really positive trends uh, going on here. What did you see in this report, Heather?
0: Well, so one of the things that that I took took away from this was the skills that, that people need. And, and so there were some really good comments on, you know, project management and leadership. And, and, and I, I really got a lot of, out of that. I was lurking <laughs> and, and sort of trying to learn about, you know, sort of, there's always this debate about, do you commit a team where does this where who owns the team right is it, is it the CFO is it the is there a chief sustainability officer who does this person report to what does that mean and I love the um, one of the points that John Davies our senior analyst made was that you want the most passionate person it doesn't matter what the title is you want the most passionate person in the c-suite so I love that comment um, and I, I I had a couple of, of uh, sort of things that popped out from the webcast that I would love to, to mention, if unless you want to, to, to talk about some more of the data.
1: No, I'll just uh, give you one uh, p- pandemic-related uh, data point, more, more anecdotal than anything. Um, I got a note uh, this week after the reports launch, after the webcast from John, who said that, you know, he sent out a blast to everybody who filled out well over a thousand people who filled out the report and as part of the survey, say, you say, know, please send me the results. And he sent out the blast to all those people and got back a lot of out of office messages, as you might expect, but almost no, I'm no longer with the company messages. And so took that as a positive sign that uh, so far, at least there hasn't been Mm -hmm. much carnage in this. So Mm -hmm. so uh, that's uh, a little bit of a coda to this, but uh, an encouraging one. So, yeah. What did you uh, pick out?
0: So there were two, I mean, there were a number of things, but I wouldn't want to highlight two of them. So I would like to start first. We, we, uh, we partnered with LinkedIn to help understand some of the, i talking about skills a moment ago. LinkedIn actually did some research that they shared on the, the webcast, uh, about the skills that are being prioritized. So, um, Understanding the the opportunities for sustainability, job seekers. What what are the the skill sets that are rising to the top? What do you need to have in your in, in your arsenal? And I loved what um, Peggy Brannigan, the senior program manager for global uh, environmental sustainability at LinkedIn, had to say on the webcast. She was one of the the people that joined us. And thank you, Peggy, if you're listening to this for for doing that. I think it was great. And So I wanted to uh, uh, highlight her thoughts on, and when she shared insights as to the top skills, the top 10 fastest rising skills among all LinkedIn searchers. And there were quite some interesting uh, takeaways. So here's uh, Peggy talking about those insights.
2: What I wanna do is first of all, give you some context for where our data insights are coming from. We have what's called an economic graph which is a digital mapping of the global economy. And basically from our 675 million member profiles, 30 million companies that have their presence on our site, uh, typically 20 million open job listings, schools, etc. cetera, we have a lot of useful information that we can roll up to a mega level and see trends in jobs and skills and talent. So I want to share two key insights in terms of skills that relate to the professionalization that you referred to. And the first insight is that for people looking for work in um, sustainability, uh, it would be the best way to get a job is to increase your technical competencies at this point. Because what we saw is that the fastest rising skill for sustainability professionals is data analysis. It rose by 18% over the last year, far and beyond more than any other um, skill. But some of the other related skills that are also increasingly important are engineering, project management, research, brain building, and then some soft skills, and in particular leadership, which will probably become even more important as we move out of this pandemic The second data insight that I want to share kind of casts a wider net. And you can see on the screen the um, top 10 fastest rising skills amongst all LinkedIn users. So that's excluding the sustainability professionals, that's everybody else. The fastest rising skills, four of the top 10, have to do with sustainability. So you can see circular economy, corporate sustainability, environmental monitoring. EHS. So I think that should be encouraging for people seeking jobs that want to go green, because what we've really seen is that job titles like mine, sustainability professional, um, with that in their job title are, are rare. But what we're seeing is there's a greening across all other job functions. And so increasingly, responsibilities for environmental management are going to be spread across an enterprise and probably in the future job postings are gonna call on people with more and more sustainability skills.
1: One of the confusions that came out of that clip, Heather, was that uh, Peggy put up this list of of 10 skills, uh, not all of which were about sustainability. This is just the skills that uh, people were looking for. And uh, and, and so there's a lot of confusion in the webcast saying, well, what does this particular one have to do with sustainability? It doesn't seem to be a sustainability-related thing. And so there was a little confusion there. But the point is that of all of, among the top 10 skills, there are several related to uh, what we would call sustainability, even if the job titles aren't necessarily that. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So one of the things that I, and of course, you had to ask this question, you, you mentioned at the beginning of this segment that the data was you know the research was done before everything sort of went to hell in a handbasket, um, so we don't. The data doesn't doesn't reflect the effects of the pandemic. But you did ask that question, of course, on the on the webcast during the Q and A session, and and I would love to now play a clip that that reflects the thoughts of all three of the participants. So we've already mentioned John Davies and Peggy Branigan. The third person that joined you was Ellen Weinreb, our longtime columnist and and of course um a a well-respected sustainability and ehg recruiting expert her company is called the wine Reb group so um and i loved all of their thoughts about um your question about what effect the pandemic might have on on the profession and what people expected sort of in the short term but also long term and and here are some of those thoughts
3: I think there'll be some definite impacts uh, in terms of in terms of hiring. I don't think we we know a lot. I mean, if you there are certainly companies who had solid balance sheets going into this that you know I've talked to some of them anecdotally and they haven't let go of staff. They haven't let go of employees. In fact, there are reports out of prepaying you know or bringing payment earlier to suppliers. So I think. Um, Then you've got other examples where, you know, mass layoffs and, you know, certain industries are really being devastated. But I think the, the, you know, I I tend to take a longer-term view of this, and I think the ESG conversation is going to continue to be really very important, and especially the social side. You know, a lot of ESG investors have have understood the environmental side, GHG emissions and, you know, fines for EPA violations. But when you get to the social side, we really haven't come up with all the metrics that we need for that. But I think that that investors are going to be drilling down and looking at post-COVID-19 crisis as to, what did companies do with their suppliers? What did they do for their customers? What did they do with their employees? And so, I think the the S in the ESG is going to get a lot more focus going forward. And Peggy, social. is there anything in the in the data that you know LinkedIn is seeing that shows any early indicators about just general hiring or anything?
2: Yeah, so every month we publish a, a workforce report and it looks at trends in jobs and skills and talent. And of course, 2019 showed a promising um, increase in sustainability jobs overall. The April workforce report from LinkedIn showed a spike in demand in some industries, right, that are at the front lines. And then, of course, uh, negative impacts for many other industries. So I think you know, part of what we know is that it will be industry-specific. Just in terms of um, how I'm thinking about this, I think, you know, first of all, look for where the opportunities are to sort of reimagine how we approach sustainability, and certainly looking for opportunities where we can drive sustainable efficiency, um, tying our initiatives closely to our income statement, where it might support um, savings and or, you know, um, revenue generation or uh, our our brand. But um, I think one of the key things that I found fascinating was how circular economy had risen to the top in our data. And I think, you know, that there are a number of employers that are looking at this transition from a linear to a more circular business model because it does drive, you know, um, an appreciation and a responsible management of, of scarce resources. And it pays attention to the whole supply chain, and I think all of those things are going to be critical to sustainability departments um, as they build their programs for, for uh, as we move out of the pandemic.
4: Great. Ellen, anything to add to that?
2: Well, I I think yeah, adding to
5: John's, uh, I think in terms of the industries, I think pharmaceuticals, tech, telecom, finance are four industries. And, and then other in, um, companies like Zoom, <laughs> the online platforms that support th- this kind of new new world order, um, th- those areas are growing, and therefore, they're still hiring in sustainability. And then the areas that are hit a lot are, I mean, it's obvious travel, retail, uh, hospitality, hospitality and restaurants and, and the like. So, um, and then there's also a, sh- a big shift with with supply chains. So, for example, Amazon used to be shipping one thing, and now there's the demand for face masks, and they need to have those um, on on quick supply. So there's an, a big adjustment. Uh, in terms of the number of the jobs I'm seeing that, that in general they're holding but there's definitely a lot of uncertainty and and concern out there
1: and you can download the free state of the profession report from greenbiz.com we'll provide a link on the page for this week's podcast
6: Deanna Anderson here, associate editor at GreenBiz. I am on the phone on Skype uh, with Rebecca Henderson. She is the John and Natty MacArthur University professor at Harvard University, where she has a joint appointment at the Harvard Business School in the General Management and Strategy Unit. Hi, Rebecca. Hi, Deanna. So you have a book coming out really soon <laughs> called Reimagining Capitalism. Um, and I'm curious about like, why you feel like corporations should be playing this role in reimagining capitalism, especially like when it comes to trying to mitigate the effects of climate change.
7: So if, if you just made me supreme ruler of the earth for, for a year and said, OK, Rebecca, fix climate change. The first thing I would attack is government policy. If we could make emitting greenhouse gases expensive, then firms would be incented not to do it there would be lots of innovation, it would make a huge difference. So the easiest route to really solving climate change is widespread climate policy, not just setting a price for carbon, there's a bunch of other policies, don't need to talk about them here. But it's only by way of saying that absolutely, political action and government action is the first best route to addressing climate change. But I think there are in two important buts. The first but is at the moment, we're not getting that kind of action. In fact, too many governments are running away from action on climate, not everywhere, but in many parts of the world. And so although I could sit in my office and design the perfect policy, if no one's going to implement it, I mean, that and 25 cents, get you a cup of coffee, right? So that's the first problem. The second problem is that even if government were to enact the perfect policy, translating it into action, rolling it out at scale, that requires billions and billions of dollars worth of investments and thousands of organizations to change what they do and how they think about what they do. So starting with business gives you a double win. In the first place, For reasons that I try and lay out in the book, I think as more and more business acts, it's increasingly likely that we'll see the kind of government action that we also need. And secondly, as business acts, we learn a ton of things. We learn the new technologies. We learn the beginnings of what this technological transformation is going to look like. We drive, um, we make technologies cheaper. We introduce consumers to the idea that they can have what they want and still be carbon friendly. So business lays the foundations for this massive transformation that we need. It accelerates the probability of getting the real policies and it prepares itself to enact that transformation.
6: That makes me think a lot about your prologue in which you write that you don't suggest that reimagining capitalism will be easy or cheap and i feel like a lot of different sectors will have to come together to kind of achieve that even with it being hard i'm curious about like why you think it's important to reimagine capitalism anyway and like can you define what reimagining capitalism is in the first place like you teach a course with that name
7: we've let capitalism get out of control capitalism is a fabulous servant but a bad master if you think about it, what is capitalism good at? It's incredibly efficient at taking a bunch of stuff and turning it into other stuff. If you want stuff, products, services, you want them efficiently, you want them now, capitalism's a fabulous solution. What is it not very good at? Well, it's not very good at problems like climate change, which are problems for all of us that play out over long time frames. Not very good at generating public goods like strong healthcare systems or education Um, It can only generate sort of pieces of this. It doesn't have the whole whole puzzle in mind. So for me, a reimagined capitalism is a capitalism in balance with two important pieces to that. One is business people thinking of themselves as in service to the society and the economy. So yes, every business person must make money, must give a decent return to their investors. I'm totally down with that. I'm a professor at the Harvard Business School. I'm on two public boards. Business must make money. But I don't think that's ultimately the purpose of business. I think business is about building a free and prosperous society, one in which everyone can take part regardless of where they were born, and one that's operating in a relatively stable environment. If we destroy the planet, we're not going to have much of an economy left. So I think we need to think of ourselves as business people with two great goals. Or if you like, our goal is to be in service to the society. And the means to do that is to make money and to give a, a good return to our investors. So making money is a means to an end. It's not the end. Now, this is not a way out statement. Business people for generations have thought of themselves as in service to their community and excited about the jobs that they produce. But over the last few years, we've got a little bit out of balance. We've come to believe that capitalism is about making as much as money, as much money as possible for me right now. And one of the best ways to make money is to destroy the rules and regulations that hold you in check. So if I can throw greenhouse gas out, gases out the out of the window for nothing. Why not? That's a great way to make money. If I can lobby against rules, which may mean that I get more intense competition, why not? Easiest way to make money is to make sure that no one can compete with me. Let me lobby for a rule that makes that possible. These are not the kinds of ways that that are really free and fair. As I said, I love capitalism, but I think of a free and fair capitalism. And a fair capitalism is one where everyone can compete. And a free capitalism is one where prices are accurate, If if I'm running my business on the basis of using enormous quantities of fossil fuels and I'm not paying for the harm that that pollution creates, then I'm not charging a fair price, and you're getting what I'm selling for too little. So for me, a reimagined capitalism is a capitalism in balance, a business sector in partnership with a democratically accountable, transparent, effective, responsive government, Um, a partnership, if you like, between two great sectors of of society held in check by a free media and a strong civil society. That's what I mean by reimagined capitalism, one where everyone has a seat at the table and is actively working together to ensure the survival of the whole system. Now, this might sound like I'm saying, well, it's a bit of kumbaya, let's just have public-private partnerships and everything will be okay. I'm actually I'm actually proposing something much harder. I'm proposing that business work to, to strengthen the sources of power in society that can hold it in check. So, for example, someone asked me if I have a, if I had $100 billion and I wanted to stop climate change, what would I do? And I said, I'd spend it on trying to get money out of politics. And, and that's what I would do. You know, if I met Mr. Gates or uh, Mr. Bloomberg and they said, well, you know, what would you do with my money? I'd say... Spend the money on making sure you can't use that money to change political outcomes. Uh, You know, what we need is a democratic system that works, that really reflects the will of the people. And so let me give you a concrete example of what I mean. Some years ago, I started working with a group of consumer goods companies who were trying to make sure that they used only sustainable palm oil. They were committed to using sustainable palm oil because consumers were getting really upset Um, at the idea of conventionally grown palm oil, which involves things like orangutans dying and um, great sheets and sheets of virgin forest going up in flames. So these consumer goods companies were very keen to only have sustainable palm oil. But as they worked on it, they discovered that firms alone could not enforce a moratorium on growing palm oil unsustainably. That, yes, you could get all the consumer goods firms in the world together, but there would still be local, local buyers or um, Indonesian or Indian buyers who said, ah, oh, we don't care, give us the dirty stuff. But the only way to make sure that everyone behaved well in the way that would sustain the jungle and the palm oil industry was for government to step up and have the capacity to control the way palm oil was grown. And I think that's a metaphor for what we're seeing across the world. Business is realizing in some ways it's too powerful. That yes, it's pushed wages absolutely to the bottom. But what has that got us? That's got us a world where our most essential workers have no savings and have to come to work because they don't have health care. And they can't afford to be sick. This is crazy. This is not a route to a prosperous society and not a route to a group of consumers who can buy all the stuff we'd like to make to sell to them. So the essence of the book is this idea that business has become too powerful and needs to recognize that and make sure that there are other centers in society that have power that can hold it in check. Government would be the first example, but organized labor would be another. That um, most of the Genuinely innovative, dynamic, more equal societies we know about have had strong forms of labour representation—a way to get the voice of the employee into the discussion, so that uh, managers cannot simply steamroller employees into uh, into lower wages and worse working conditions. Rebuilding a balance across the different actors in society.
6: Yeah, and I feel like you have stories in your book about like companies that are trying to kind of redefine their purpose with King Arthur Flower, for example, of which we're running an excerpt um, on the Green Biz site. I feel like that was a good example of kind of like balancing <laughs> the power um, within a company. I'm curious, lastly, is there any like one thing that if readers take nothing else away from reimagining capitalism in a world on fire like what what would you want them to take away
7: i would like readers to take away the idea that we can reimagine capitalism that this is not a utopian pipe dream that there is a pragmatic path to building a much more just and a much more sustainable society that doesn't mean throwing capitalism out capitalism is the greatest source of prosperity and freedom of opportunity that the world has ever seen, but means controlling it more effectively. And the second thing I'd like them to take away is that each and every one of us can make a difference in building such a society. That while none of us can do it alone, this is not a story of lone heroes fixing everything, that this is all about ourselves as a society deciding that this is what we want. And that you as a citizen, as a customer, as an employee, as a friend, have all kinds of avenues for helping to to drive this kind of change and being part of it. It's easy to despair, particularly in the midst of a pandemic as we are now. It's very easy to see the world as very black. But humans are immensely resourceful. And the way to make yourself feel better is to do something. And once you start taking action, it's a source of so much energy and hope. Um, so well worth doing. If you're if you're feeling a bit down, pick up the mouse and see what you can do. Thank you
6: so much for coming onto the podcast.
7: Thank you so much for having me on uh, on the show, Deanna. I really appreciate it.
1: Last week, the global management consultancy, Oliver Wyman, in partnership with Morgan Stanley, published a report on the prospects for the banking world in a post-COVID economy. One section covers the role of commercial and investment banks in supporting the transition to a low-carbon economy. Joining me now is one of the report's authors, James Davis, a partner in Oliver Wyman's London office. Hello, James. Hello. So in the report, you say that you believe that the COVID-19 pandemic and its economic fallout Will accelerate the demand for products promoting a more sustainable economy. Can you explain?
4: Before the pandemic struck us, there was a growing groundswell of, uh, of interest in climate change and the wider question of, of sustainable uh, finance. Now, trying to discern how the whole pandemic plays out and, and impacts uh, on that trend is very hard to do at this point in time. You know, on the one hand, you, you could argue people are going to be so focused on restarting the economy that they're going to be willing to, to take more sacrifices in terms of sustainability. And the counter to the argument is that people have experienced you know, what's possible through collective action. People have seen the risks that can build up by major systemic issues not being addressed. Uh, and also, more tactically, people you know, through this period will look at the performance of, of sustainable finance products and, and, and draw the conclusion that, Sustainable, at least in the world of investing, um, it's possible to 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 achieve both sustainable outcomes and deliver good financial um, financial outcomes.
1: So this isn't necessarily consumers looking at consumer products. This is the world of commercial and investment banking, and so their banking clients are the ones that you're saying are going to be looking for more uh, uh, sustainability-focused companies. Products, services, uh, again, we're trying to get down to understand what specifically is going to be the, the new demand.
4: In a way, it starts with the consumer. Um, and if you look across most industries, you'll see, and we've done you know, consumer insight testing into this, and you'll find that people love the idea of sustainability. They like it as a brand attribute, but often are unwilling to pay for it. Um, if you ask them to pay more for a brand that has you know, sustainability, they'll often put that well below other qualities like quality or prestige or other things that it might be willing to pay a premium for. The interesting thing with financial services is that that's not necessarily true. You can invest in um, a portfolio of of, of companies as a, as, a, as a favor, as an investor, um, and not necessarily um, suffer a, a lower financial outcome through making that choice. And and the experience over the pandemic so far has been that the SGA sector has performed pretty well. So we'll only add weight to that, that story that says you can have sustainable investing and which will de- deliver you nice societal outcomes, but also good uh, financial outcomes as well.
1: So most of the big banks, in fact, I'd say all of them are still mired in the fossil fuel economy and a bunch of made commitments to end summer. All of those activities uh, last week, Citi said that they were going to stop providing financial services to thermal coal mining, coal mining companies over the next 10 years. So we're not going to see dramatic shifts quickly. Is that a problem or do you think banks, financial institutions need to be moving further faster?
4: This is a very difficult question for, for, for banks. You know, many of them um, have a genuine desire to be on the right side of this argument. But on the other hand, they are servants of the economy in many ways. And if you're operating in an economy for whom the, the fossil fuels are still a major part of the energy mix, it's hard for the banking sector to, to walk away from those clients whilst wider policy in the economy hasn't made that change uh, dramatically. So the banks need to find a way where they can push and where they can um, where they can, you know, skew their portfolio in the right direction, but it's hard for them to make some of these binary shifts at the scale that I think some people would like them to. I think what's interesting as well is you have a world of you know the, the world of of bank lending is the world of banks taking you know their balance sheets and, and and using them to 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 lend, and that balance sheet draws on all sorts of sources of of of, of liabilities from savers and wholesale markets. And otherwise, if you go into the capital markets world and the world of investing in in, in equity and bonds securities, um, you know fund managers are much more dexterous in how they can put together uh, ESG uh, wrapped. Um, portfolios and products but that, that give savers and investors that choice to say well if i really believe in sustainability as a, as a theme then i can choose to put my my savings in in uh, in those products that support that theme and that's a cleaner a cleaner distinction than in banks where the financing side is, is all mingled up and it's hard to say well this part of the balance sheet finances green and that part of the balance sheet doesn't
1: So what's the role of customers here? And I hear I'm speaking more of the B2B customers than individual consumers. Uh, I imagine they have a significant role to play in in at least signaling their interest in these things. Obviously, that has to uh, be backed with with demand of actually executing on some of these things. But what would you counsel companies that are customers of some of these banks to be doing to further this uh, faster?
4: Companies obviously manage multiple stakeholders. They've got their own customers, and they have to feel where they can lead their customers and where they can push their customers to adapt their behaviours, or, or offer um, products and services that, that that will move you know their service in that direction. And, and banks are, are are a supporter of that, and and as well, they've got their investors to, to speak to. Um, and banks again are a critical um, you know, support to to, to To companies and helping them explain what their policies are and helping them attract you know ultimately capital um, you know to support that transition
1: so what would you like to see banks be doing now what are you recommending that that the actions that they take in the short term
4: one is is understanding the risks Um, you know you can look at the portfolio Uh, of a bank and there's there's lots of lending on there um, that's a function of decisions that have been made over time and uh, long-held relationships. Climate change is is a new and and growing risk and it it was hit um, uh, companies in a way that that previous trends haven't. And so the the risk models that are used to assess companies' financial health often don't factor in climate change at all because they're based on historical experience and, and climate change isn't something we've experienced. In the past, so there is a, a lot of work to be done to build those models, understand the risk, and then actually embed those uh, findings in the way that decisions are taken and the way that loans are selected. And that's both physical risk, um, you know, the, the damage that can be done by floods and fires and climate change itself, but transition risk as well. I mean, if you start from the idea that there's a growing groundswell of desire amongst the public for change, and that manifests itself in the chance, in a likelihood. That the policies will change, the customer behaviors will change, and that will change um, what drives success uh, and failure in, in different industries. And, and, and banks need to understand that and assess that as part of their portfolio selection and their portfolio management processes in a way that many are not yet doing today. And so the first block of action is all around risk measurement and risk management. The second block of action is more around the opportunities that come with this. And, and, and as, we, as you look on the one hand that this growing mass of of funds in ESG wrappers of some flavor or other, um, that's capital that wants to be deployed towards sustainable uh, ends and towards climate change. Um, Banks have a vital role to play in distributing that and finding investment opportunities and creating the products and structures that will allow that market to further grow. So finally, what's
1: the financial prize for financial institutions that get this right?
4: So we estimated it it could be as much as uh, a two to three point difference in ROE if you add together the the benefits in market share terms from from grasping those opportunities around transition finance, around green financing products, around ESG investing, um, and then you look at the risks and the dangers of positioning the balance sheet towards the wrong sectors and and, and, and not taking into account the growing uh, climate risks that affect the balance sheet. So those two effects together could, could drive two to three points of, of ROE difference between those that get it right and those that don't and on top of that there's, there's banks own ESG ratings to think about um, you know today when 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 uh, e banks are assessed in terms of their own performance the e in ESG is often based really on banks own environmental footprint uh, and there's a growing focus on on scope 3 emissions and you know what's the impact um, of 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 the companies that banks themselves are financing and so these decisions you know will also play into banks own esg uh, scores over time uh, and that may well affect their ability to, to attract capital
1: yeah james davis is a partner in the london office of oliver wyman and a co-author of a new report steering through the next cycle you can download it at oliverwyman.com. thanks so much james thank you
6: Deanna Anderson, Associate Editor here at Green Biz, and I'm here with Eileen Mockus, CEO of home textiles company Koyuchi. Eileen has spent much of her career working for companies that have sustainable business models. For example, she started at Patagonia and also has spent time at the North Face and Pottery Barn before joining Koyuchi as the Vice President of Product in 2011 and then becoming CEO in 2013. Thanks for coming on to Green Biz 350. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. So before we jump into our main topic today, which is how companies with missions based in sustainability are better equipped to weather tough economic times, I wanted to mention that by the time this interview airs, uh, my story about Koichi's circular economy efforts will be up on the site. For any listeners who haven't read the story, I wanted to know if you can share a little bit about how Koyuchi entered the circular economy about three years ago.
8: Absolutely. Uh, We initiated a program that we refer to as Koyuchi for Life, uh, and it is a sustainable subscription program for our products, which is primarily um, sheets, towels, and, and home goods. And what we put together with that program was uh, taking advantage of the fact that we make our product out of organic and natural fibers and know how our product is processed because we follow uh, the global organic textile standard. Um, Our product is a great candidate for being able to be recycled. And so the subscription program has a uh, component to it where the product is returned to Koyuchi. Um, And we have since expanded that program um, to our second home program where we're taking back uh, any Kuiuchi product that a customer has purchased from us at any time. And we partnered with the Renewal Workshop where they are taking our product back. They have a cleaning process. They will do any repairs. Uh, They gather all sorts of information about how the product um, how the product looks, where did it have failure points that we're able to then learn about as we continue to make our product. And then uh, most of that product is then resold to customers at our one retail store, which is our shop in Point Ray Station here in Northern California. And the balance of the product was held at Renewal Workshop, and we have just sent A shipment of that product to a textile recycler, where the product will be um, basically chopped up, spun into new yarn, combined with uh, organic cotton. And we'll be turning that into a blanket that will be available to our customers this fall.
6: I wanted to have you on or we wanted to chat because right now with COVID-19 and like the resulting economic downturn, some companies and business leaders are taking a step back to re-examine different facets of their business. Um, and do you think that they should be examining their sustainability efforts as they like make those efforts
8: to kind of take a step back? I think it's a great time to incorporate sustainability into those conversations about what initiatives will bring your business out of um, this economic downturn in a way that will um, continue to grow the business, but also um, shift how that interaction looks with the customer. What are the customers, what's the customer valuing about your business that you can then combine with a growing sentiment from consumers of continued interest in how brands are incorporating sustainability into their businesses? So what would you say they should exactly be
6: considering when it comes to assessing sustainability?
8: Um, You know, I think there's a couple of different things that when you look at sustainability and uh, what happens during a recession, um, and to me, kind of three things rise to the top. Um, If you're making products, um, there's less purchasing, but each purchase matters more. And there's always a common perception that price will rise to the top during a recession. And while price matters, uh, what you see in fashion trends is that classic designs, more neutral colors, um, those gain favor during a recession because the customer is buying for longevity. And I think that leads to the sense of there's more consideration of each purchase and it brings out criteria beyond price. And that's where there's an opportunity to factor in where sustainability could be part of that conversation. Um, The second piece is this growing, uh, the brand's customers shop are reflective of their own values. And all indications are that those values now incorporate sustainability. Um, I was just reading a survey that showed that in 2020, roughly 8 out of 10 consumers consider the environmental impacts of their purchase. Um, That's pretty much an all-time high. And so wanting to make sure that your business incorporates that as you look at your relationship with your customer in the future. And the third piece that I've noticed um, with each economic cycle that I've been a part of while working in retail is that in textiles specifically, the volume of sustainable fibers goes up after each down cycle. And it's going up at an increasing rate with each downturn. And you know, an example of that is that um, the volume of sustainable cotton um, in a report published by Textile Exchange last year is that it's increased up to 22% of total cotton production. Again, highest point ever for interest in sustainable cotton. And while that may take a step back from how brands have to get through this downturn, it's going to continue to go up again because it's tied into those values of the customer.
6: Can you like share a little bit about how Koyuchi has kind of set itself up for success Uh, with respect to like these economic times
8: that we're about to continue to see? Yeah, um, and you know, it's all still unfolding. uh, So I can't necessarily speak to exactly how we'll fare. But um, when I look at what a sustainable business model needs to incorporate, it's that it will work financially. And part of that model incorporates making a positive change. Uh, for Koyuchi right now, uh, we continue our commitment to organic fiber and organic processing, and that leads us a little bit deeper into the supply chain and an opportunity to work differently in that supply chain. Uh, and then we really focus on the value that uh, the people bring to our product because we're dependent on um all of the the workers as the makers of our product and the craft that they bring. And it's really, uh, you know, there's a such a human component to what's going on right now. And so wanting to make sure that we're um, understanding what they're going through and looking for opportunities to be able to give back to um, the workers that we participate with, either from the farmer side, um, our fair trade programs, Um, Those are places where we can make a difference right now, um, but it adds to the values of our brand that is what the consumer looks for, and I believe they will continue to look for that will set us up for further success. So you've been working in the sustainability
6: space for decades, and I'm curious if you can share examples of um, companies that you've worked at or with that have been able to really pivot and embed sustainability into their work successfully and kind of like what helped them reach that success since we're talking about how companies are stepping back and can re-examine their businesses?
8: I think the best example that I experienced is my time at Patagonia. Uh, I was there in the early 90s where they were pretty heavily impacted by uh, the recession at at the start of the 90s. And it really was a kind of a soul-searching time for uh, the owners of the company and the executives at the time. And really uh, impressed to see that some of the things that came out of um, that, that particular time in their history have only proven to show up more in how the company has behaved over time. Um, so they were forced to lay off a portion of their workforce at the time. And, uh, you know, it was it was pretty upsetting to be there and, and watch that happen. And I'm always impressed because as I, you know, kind of read about the company now, um, hear Yvon chenard talk about uh, that particular time frame and how it changed his view of things. Um, it really changed how they viewed their business and what they were committed to providing for their customers and, and how they wanted to provide for their employees as well. Um, and so, so that's a really great example of, um, you know, it is a time for assessing um, what what your business, uh, why your business and what you can bring to the table. And it's um, it's great to incorporate the values uh, that you want to build the business on for the future.
6: So I guess my last question for you is if there is any like last pieces of advice that you can leave listeners who might be working in companies that are trying to figure out their next steps and how to survive.
8: Uh, I think that one of the most important things is to make sure that you're really looking at your value proposition. Um, Why does the customer buy from your, your brand, your business, And how do you incorporate uh, those values into your future initiatives? Um, All across the the spectrum, companies are looking at how to navigate these unknowns. And I think it's a really great opportunity to build sustainability into any of those initiatives as a fundamental component of the initiative itself.
6: I want to thank you so much for coming on the show.
8: Thanks, Diana. It's a pleasure to be here, and uh, it's great to talk to you.
0: This episode is sponsored by Villanova University's Sustainable Engineering Graduate Program. Gain tangible takeaways and sustainable business best practices that you can immediately apply to your organization. Offered online and on campus, visit VUSustainableEngineering.com.
1: that's our 350 podcast for this week as always you can go to greenbiz.com 350 to find out more about the organization's stories and events we mentioned this week while you're there check out our free e-newsletters we publish six every week you can go to greenbiz.com slash newsletters to find out more about them and we'd love to hear from you you can email us at 350 at greenbiz.com Heather and I will be back next week from our respective home distancing purchase with another edition of GreenBiz 350. Until next time, from all of us here at GreenBiz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Stay home, stay safe, and as always, thanks so much for tuning in.